If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Thirty years ago, a deadly standoff in Texas between a religious cult and the FBI hit the headlines around the United States. The story of leader David Koresh and the power that he held over the Branch Davidian religious group has both fascinated and appalled in the decades since, and cast a dark shadow over US politics. Matt Elton spoke to Stephen Tolte about the Waco story, what it says about 20th century America and the ways in which its mythologization informs extremism in the 21st century. Please be aware that this conversation contains discussion of sexual abuse. So Stephen, your new book explores some fairly upsetting but also deeply influential events that happened in the United States 30 years ago this April. For people who might not have heard of the 1993 Waco siege, can you really briefly, to start with, outline what happened? There was a, a sect, some call it a cult, named the Branch Davidians, and it was led by uh, David Koresh. And over time, he he became increasingly paranoid, and he was also breaking several laws. So he was sleeping with underage girls, and he was harboring automatic weapons and 50 caliber sniper rifles, which is outlawed by federal law. So the ATF, which is our Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, found out about this. They staged a siege on February 28, 1993. It was a disaster for ATF agents were killed, several Branch Davidians as well. And that led to a 51-day siege just outside Waco, Texas, in which the FBI was trying to convince Koresh and the others to come out. And because of, you know, religious convictions and some brainwashing and other factors, most of them remained inside. And after that siege ended, the FBI tried to insert some tear gas and the Branch Davidians, thinking this was an attack, basically set the compound on fire, leading to what we know as the Waco tragedy, where 76 bodies were found in the rubble afterward. What's fascinating about this story is, as well as the horror of those events themselves, as your book outlines, there's sort of underlying currents here that led to this moment, and also a kind of a cultural afterlife, which we'll probably get into in a minute. To start with, I suppose, we should go back to the beginnings of this story. What do you think are the important things to understand from the early life of David Koresh, who, as you mentioned, is one of the key figures in this story? Absolutely. So Koresh grew up in working-class towns in, in Texas, near Dallas and Houston, and he had a very sort of unsettled and even violent childhood. He was born out of wedlock in 1959, his mother was only 13 years old when she fell pregnant, and his father was never really around. So one of the most fascinating things I came across in my research is that he did have love from the women in his life uh, early on, but the men, his grandfather, uh, his father, and his stepfather, all basically either rejected, humiliated, or beat him quite vigorously during his childhood. So David Koresh was born 
it seems almost Jeanette. He was born with a very big ego. He had, he had a certain kind of narcissism that was quite grandiose. But in his childhood, he, he was met with rejection, as I said, humiliation, and he felt that very deeply. So the important thing to understand is that when he came out of you know, his teenage years, he had this desire to sort of get back the respect and love that he had been denied as a child. You know, of course, when you, when you talk of biography, everything goes back to childhood. And what we see here is a narcissist who's suffered a wound to his narcissism, I think. Uh, which is very common among cult leaders. So he, in his early 20s, discovers the Branch Davidians, quickly rises to become their leader, and then we are on the path to the Waco tragedy. It's interesting you mentioned cult leaders there, because I think one of the fascinating things and the troubling things that come along with that fascination is the idea of these cult leaders as being charismatic or trying to explain how influential they get. Are there any aspects of America at the point in time we're talking when David Koresh came to power that we need to understand to understand this specific cult story? Well, I think you have to understand where David Koresh came from. He grew up in the 1960s around Dallas, and Dallas at the time was a hotbed of right-wing conspiracy theories, paranoia, really anti-federal government activism. So what he would hear on the radio is these really extreme far-right conspiracy theories about how the devil had allied himself with the federal government. The FBI was, you know, an agent of Babylon, that old biblical name for the evil empire, if you will. So he kind of marinated in this rhetoric that has grown, sadly, very familiar to all of us. But it was then really kind of in its infancy, um, but he got a full dose of it. So David Koresh you know, was sort of raised in an atmosphere of fear and loathing of the federal government. And to go beyond that a little bit, he was also, of course, in the Bible Belt. So, you know, he had sort of been born out of wedlock, born in sin, if you like. And he always carried that burden of illegitimacy and of being, you know, kind of a reject from society, not only in his high school years and before he had these big glasses that we all know from the pictures, causing him to be called four eyes in the schoolyard. So you have a combination of these very extreme conspiracy theories that was the atmosphere that he was growing up, and also this kind of poisonous wound to his own self-regard. Are there any other key figures in the sort of early decades of his life that we need to understand to make sense of what happened next? I think one of the interesting things I found in the book is I found his last girlfriend before he went to Waco. And she had never spoken to the press before, And she really filled out in detail this relationship, which at the beginning was hugely important and very romantic, honestly. But what she found was that David Koresh, when he faced an obstacle or when he had a need in his life, would go to the Bible and find justification for what he wanted to do. So uh, Sandy was a very religious girl, knew her scriptures backwards and forwards, She said to him, David, you know, you're misinterpreting the Bible for your own needs, and you're really misusing the scriptures in order to get what you want. So even though this seemed to be a turning point in David's life, he'd finally found true love. He found someone who was perfect for him, really, a a biblical scholar in her own right, in a way. It still was never enough. It was something that was kind of insatiable for him that he wouldn't even believe, he wouldn't even obey the word of God. If it went against his own wishes, 
he kind of supplanted the role of God in the Bible and, and, you know, made his own scriptures in a way. Staying on the subject of religion, I think the existence of the kind of religious sects as the Branch Davidians, who you mentioned earlier, might come as a surprise to some listeners, especially in Britain, I suppose. How common was this kind of religious grouping during the 20th century in America? I mean, it's very common. I think America has been swept by these revivals really since its beginning, these religious revivals when it always seems to be a return to the scriptures, you know, a return to the old religion. Uh, Of course, in the 60s and 70s, we had these kind of alternative cults where people like Charles Manson or Jim Jones became charismatic leaders of, of people and in a way that was not really tied to the old movements. This was something that came out of the 60s, I think, in the unrest. But Koresh was very much in the tradition, even going back to the Mormons and to the Seventh-day Adventists, which became established religions, but of course began as very small sects led by charismatic men. And what Koresh was focused on again and again in his career was the end times. He preached about the apocalypse. He talked about the book of Revelations. And what was sort of unique about David Koresh was that he promised the end times in your lifetime. You know, he didn't say you have to wait for the afterlife. You know, it could happen next year. It could happen in five years. And this was immensely exciting to people who had often been through several different churches. They tried the the Baptists or the Pentecostals or perhaps even the Church of England. What David really promised was sort of, you know, immediate gratification in a certain way. And that was in the tradition of the cults that had sprang up really since the 1700s, but it was much more sort of marinated in that paranoid style that he had picked up in Dallas. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And perhaps you could talk us through the events that led him to joining up with the Branch Davidians and the extent to which he changed by joining up with them, what their purpose and views were, I suppose. So the Branch Davidians had really been around since the 1930s. They were a split-off group from the Seventh-day Adventists who also focused on the apocalypse and, you know, very much a millennial faith, talking about the end of history as we know it and the emergence of God's new kingdom on earth. So David Koresh was really at loose ends. He'd broken up with Sandy, and he was speaking to a member of a congregation that he belonged to in Tyler, Texas. And he kept repeating the same thing. He said, where are the living prophets? You know, I've, I've read through the Bible. I've read through the Adventist scholars that have come after Jesus. But I'm kind of tired of these dead words. You know, I need some fresh inspiration. I need something that applies to me here and now. And one of the uh, people he spoke to said, well, there's a group in Waco, Texas, led by a a living prophet named Lois Rodin. And she speaks what they call new light. She's giving fresh interpretations of the Bible to take people from the here and now to the end times. 
So David Koresh heard about it, and within a few days, he was in Waco, Texas. And when he first gets there, he finds that the the Branch Davidians are led by a woman, an older woman named Lois Roden, whose husband used to be the leader of the Branch Davidians. He had died, and she'd become the new prophet. And so this was very much a prophetic church. To lead the Branch Davidians, you needed to be having visions from God, to be directed by God in order to sort of prepare the Branch Davidians for the end times. And he really began as a nobody there. You know, he swept the floor, he fixed broken windows, he was a handyman, and kind of on the lowest rung of the Branch Davidians, if you will. But what David Koresh soon revealed was that in person, in the room, he was a marvelous preacher. He was really brilliant in the way that he could connect different sections of the Bible, you know, find a theme and sort of run it through the entirety of the scriptures. And he was just an entrancing speaker. So this was really the gift that set David apart from Lois Roden. She was sort of a, a homespun, older woman, gave the same lecture again and again, the same sermons. And Koresh came in and he just, he was really just improvising, you know, reading a section of the Bible and giving these really kind of radical interpretations about what was coming. So this was electrifying for a lot of people, but a lot of people also opposed David Koresh, felt he was, as we talked about before, finding things in the Bible that really weren't there. So it split the Branch Davidians, and eventually David Koresh became the leader of the larger contingent uh, within the group. Which year was it when he gained that power? It's right around 1983. He did a series of Bible studies. And in the beginning, he was really terrible. He was nervous. He was stuttering. But by the third Bible study, he'd really come into his own, and people fell to their knees in front of him. But a lot of people I spoke to who had been in the room when he gave that third lecture, even people who left the group afterwards said that they were convinced too, that this, this was a person who had come into the group very shy, and he looked like a bum, honestly. And to see him transformed into this really fiery, brilliant speaker to them was itself evidence that God was, you know, remaking David Koresh into the new Messiah or the new preacher that was going to sort of bring the Branch Davidians to the final act. It's interesting you mentioned his fieriness. Was there a sense that within the organisation he was volatile? And to what extent did his presence cause division or conflict? When he first got to Waco, he would really cry out and fall to the ground because of his sinning. He said he was a harlot. He didn't even deserve to live. And God was sort of working to make him a better person. So the volatility was there from the beginning, but they didn't really take it seriously because David, he was a nobody. He didn't matter within the Branch Davidian spectrum. It was only when he started to gain control and gain power that people saw that he was very much focused on what he wanted and really went beyond the bounds that other Branch Davidian leaders had sort of obeyed. You know, he really broke up marriages. He destroyed romances. He wanted to be the sole object of affection among the Davidians. They did recognize it at first, but they didn't take it seriously and a lot of them really paid the price for that. We should probably get a sense of what life was like for the members of this sect. Did they all live together in the same compound? How would daily life have been structured? So the compound really wasn't built until 1990. Uh, before that, there was a scattering of houses, an administration building, a chapel. So people led a very kind of 
boring, repetitive life. Um, the Branch Davidians often were not supposed to go into town and have actual jobs because the leaders wanted to keep them around and, and keep them away from the temptations of the big city. When David got there, it was just really, it seemed almost like the same day over and over again. They were waiting for the arrival of Christ, were signs of the apocalypse. So Lois Roden would give really kind of the same Bible study over and over again. And many of them found it uninspiring. I mean, if they were waiting for the end of the world, why wasn't progress being made towards that? And so David Koresh, when he gets there, of course, he upsets the apple cart. He starts to divide the Branch Davidians between those who are following Lois Rodin and those who are following him. And when he does gain power, he wants even more control over the Davidians. So he builds this huge compound where they're all going to live and work and study and worship. And so there's going to be even less escape from David Koresh or from the Branch Davidian theology. Um, so that was one of his major changes physically to the environment that they were living in. One of the things I find fascinating about this story is even given his charisma and his ability to give these amazing sermons, the extent to which he was able to gain power and the speed at which it seems that he was able to gain power is still remarkable. Are there any other things we need to understand to make sense of that, do you think? Well, you know, David sort of knew what he had. And one of the ways he rose to power within the Davidians is that he seduced Lois Roden. She was the leader. She was lonely. So slowly, a, a relationship grew up between him and Lois Roden. And what you find is that David was very good in giving people what they wanted. Lois Roden was, you know, very much on her own, and he provided a companion, and he provided almost exaltation. He he treated her as a prophet. So he's very good at almost in a few seconds picking up why you're at Waco, what what in your life has driven you there. And he would do this again and again. If somebody had, you know, a sexual abuse in their past, he would talk about how that had happened to him. And it did. He would offer counseling, offer advice, and offer comfort. But then again, that was really just one of his ways of gaining control over people is sort of um, fulfilling their needs. So he happened to Discover in Lois Rodin a, a desire for one last great romance, and he gave that to her. And then he basically pushed her out once he was in control. When she died in 1986, was the path to succession a straightforward one? Not at all, actually. She had a son named George Rodin, another fascinating Texas character. George Rodin very much thought he was the prince in waiting. He was going to be brought in and he would become the leader of the Branch Davidians. But of course, David Koresh had showed up and he was the rival. So George Rodin had mental problems. He had Tourette's syndrome. He had all these crazy ideas. He actually ran for president of the country in 1976. And he just had these grand illusions about his future, uh, really saw himself as a biblical figure returned to life. So David had to sort of defeat this last remaining contender to the throne in order to gain power. And it came to a head uh, in, in a shootout in 1986, where David Koresh went back to the compound with some of his more hardcore followers. And there was a gunfight between him and the Branch Davidians and George Rodin. So nobody got killed, nobody got hurt really, except George took a bullet to the hand, but it went to trial. David Koresh was arrested. And this became hugely important because 
Koresh felt that he had been humiliated during the arrest and the confinement afterward. So later on, when he's being asked to come out by the FBI, he flashes back to this episode in jail and also to the um, the treatment he received where he felt, you know, he was sort of treated like white trash, honestly. He was thrown to the ground. He was handcuffed. He was treated roughly. And this really offended, again, his narcissism. So a lot of people thought that the acquittal in this trial, and he was acquitted, he was found not guilty, would make him more positive towards the, you know, towards the justice system. But in reality, David felt, I'm never going back there. I'm never going to go back to jail. I would rather die. And he, he expressed that at the time. David Koresh was always looking forward and seeing trouble with the federal government. So he straight up told the Texas sheriffs, you'll never see me again. You're never going to have me in the situation again. And that proved to be prophetic because that's exactly what became one of the obstacles when the FBI was trying to get him out. Two of the other seeds that eventually led to the 1993 situation were David Koresh's relationship with firearms and his relationship with girls and underage women. Can you talk us through how those two things played into the events of 1993? As far as the women go, I mean, the tragedy of David Koresh is that he escaped this violent childhood where he was sexually abused. And then when he got to Waco and he gained power, he recreated that childhood in many ways among the followers. So he'd been sexually abused, and he sought out these 12, 13-year-old girls, and he repeated it again. He'd been beaten and humiliated by his stepfather. That became a regular thing within Waco. So as far as the sexual abuse of the girls go, it, it was horrible. Anyone who was attractive to him, he would go after, whether it was a woman married to one of his followers or to the daughter so he had many encounters with these young girls. They, they formed what they called the House of David, which was really kind of a harem. And they competed to get his attention because they were all under his sway. So reports began to leak out. The state of Texas uh, opened an investigation. And they couldn't get any of the kids to testify or any of their parents. So that really became the roadblock. So he didn't face state charges. But when the federal government heard about what was happening with the weapons, that really did cause a problem. And it began with a UPS uh, delivery man. UPS is the competitor to FedEx in America. And they were delivering a box to Waco and a grenade casing, an empty grenade fell out. And the UPS contacted the sheriff. The sheriff contacted the ATF and they opened the investigation. And this time they were able to find enough evidence to get an indictment to get uh, a warrant for his arrest. So it was really the guns that led to the initial raid, even though in the warrant, um, the sexual abuse was mentioned, but that's not a federal crime, that's a state matter. So it was really only the guns that led the ATF uh, to his doorstep. So we've got all the pieces in place. He stockpiled these weapons. We've got the ATF who are planning to investigate. What happens next and how did it go so badly wrong? Um, you know, I spoke to a lot of the ATF guys who were on the ground there, men and women, and they're furious about the image of this botched raid on Waco because it's been sort of alleged that they messed up the whole operation. And I found that was not true. It was really middle management, the planners of this operation, that got things wrong. And what I found was it was a, a mixture of arrogance and competence. Uh, the ATF carries out 
thousands of these raids in their history. They go after drug dealers or gun runners. And these people rarely shoot back. They rarely resist. I mean, it's, you're going up against the U.S. government. And so the ATF had this kind of invincible aura around them when they went to Waco. And they just planned a terrible operation. David Koresh often went into Waco to go to guitar shops. He was a, a guitar freak. He loved, you know, sort of looking at the new models. So he was there ready to be arrested, really. If you wanted to plan an operation, it could have taken five minutes and it could have taken maybe four agents to take him down. But their surveillance teams, they set up a surveillance team across from the compound in Waco, somehow missed the fact that he left the compound. And they didn't interview people in Waco to see where he went or even if he left the place. So this was just a huge error. And it compounded itself because the planners decided that the best way to attack this situation was really a frontal assault on the compound, to act with the element of surprise and get David Koresh out of there. But on the day of the operation, February 28th, a Branch Davidian went out to sort of get the papers. It was a series of newspaper articles about him. And they ran into a member of the press. And the press guy did not know that this was a member of the Branch Davidians and said there's a federal raid underway. Of course, the Branch Davidian ran back and told David Koresh. So the operation was blown really almost an hour before it went off. And the ATF should have shut it down immediately. That was really their guidelines, their regulations. But, you know, it's kind of the fog of war and this huge bureaucracy in motion. You have 80-plus agents already on the ground. You're spending a lot of money. And they, they decide to go forward. So again and again, they, they blew the chance to really call off the operation and pull back and reassess. They just didn't do that. They went for the more dangerous option of this frontal assault on, on the compound, and they paid a horrible price. And the FBI got involved, and then the siege, which you mentioned earlier, which went on for such a long time. Why, why did this siege go on for such a long time? You know, it's a great question, because what I found in my research is that the negotiating team within the FBI was having some success. They were getting a dribble of people out of there, some young children, some parents, but it was very slow. And this was, if you have to remember, this was 1993. This was Bill Clinton's first domestic crisis. And it was also one of the first major cable news phenomenon. It was on CNN almost uh, around the clock. So you had this kind of public pressure to get this done, to get it done right. And the sort of flaw in that argument was that the tactical team, the guys with the guns on the ground, the snipers within the FBI were really fighting with the negotiating team. They were at sort of odds with each other. Of course, the negotiators wanted to persuade David Koresh to charm him, to sort of convince him to come out, but without sort of intimidation and pressure. And for the tactical guys, intimidation and pressure is what worked. So you had this sort of FBI team at cross purposes. But the main fact was that David Koresh would, would release some of his guys, some of his followers, but he was never going to come out himself and lead the majority of, of the men and women out. So some people have said, could the you know, FBI, if they'd taken another month, could Koresh have come out? And some people say, yes, I, I very much think he was never coming out. And he was going to hold his biological children. By that time, he had quite a number of his own children within there. And his hardcore followers were going to obey and stay with him. So, I mean, the FBI did get people out, but I think they could have gotten more if they'd sort of gone more with the negotiating aspect, with the negotiating path. 
But eventually the decision was made that this had to end. There was no progress being made. Towards the end, no people were coming out. And the FBI decided to go with the tear gas. And on 19th of April, as you said, the FBI launched a tear gas attack and the compound then went up in flames. How did that happen? You know, this is one of the controversies and the myths around around Waco. Who set the fire? When you look into it, the FBI had bugs inside the compound. They'd inserted little microphones in the milk cartons that they sent in. So we can hear the Branch Davidians say, bring the kerosene over here, bring the fuel to the left, light this fire, keep it going. It's absolutely clear that they set the fire. And what you also discover in those tapes is that David Koresh saw this as kind of the final FBI assault. And what he wanted to do was to draw some FBI agents into the compound and then light it on fire. And then their deaths, along with the deaths of the Branch Davidians, would really trigger the end times. So you would have this sort of final battle with Babylon, which is the way that he taught the followers to see America and its federal government. And then, you know, the the apocalypse would begin. So the Davidians definitely sent the fire. It's just that the process that the FBI used to get there was not really logical in many ways. I mean, they were having success, but their own sort of stubbornness in trying to provoke David Koresh led him to shut down and to keep more people inside. Is that a view that's now shared by the FBI today, or is this still contested? No, I think one thing I found within the FBI and the ATF is that they really did learn the lessons of Waco. A lot of people on the far right, after the fire, said, there's never going to be a second Waco because we're going to fight next time. But what really happened is that the ATF and the FBI learned to lean more on their negotiating teams and to do other things. Because there have been confrontations since then between far-right extremists and and the FBI. Uh, there was one in Montana. There have been several since then. And what the FBI did is brought in people from the resistors' families, had them talk to them face-to-face, and just had a more conciliatory approach than they did at Waco. And that worked. So I have to give the federal government credit on this, that they did sort of learn the extremely painful lessons of Waco and have not repeated it. And those lessons were painful because the death toll was was huge, wasn't it, from this? Yes. 72 men, women, and children were found dead as a result of the fire. And there was also four Branch Davidians who were found in the tunnels underneath the Branch Davidian compound who were victims of that initial raid. And then, of course, you had the four ATF agents and really this sort of dark stain on American history. One of the painful things I found out about Waco is that in other tragedies in American history, 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, we've always managed to find a hero. Whether they're authentic or manufactured, you know, we always came out with someone we could say, this person won the Medal of Honor for his performance at, at Pearl Harbor. You could even point to Giuliani as mayor. Emerge is a much more attractive national figure after that event. But no one at Waco comes out looking good. And that is just, you know, it's just a dark omen for America, I feel, because Waco has become more and more important in American history, even since 1993. I mean, you look at the fact that Donald Trump launched his 2024 campaign from Waco. Why? Because the right wants to make it really into a new national shrine, I think, the same way that the Alamo or Plymouth Rock is seen as sort of a a turning point in American history. But of course, Waco is a much more malignant 
event in our history, and yet it's become this kind of uh, secular shrine. That was Stephen Tolte. Koresh, the true story of David Koresh and the tragedy at Waco, is out now, published by Apollo. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.